Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We have three significant LGBT developments to talk about on today's podcast. We're going to update you on a memo from the head of the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, which applies the employment discrimination ruling in Bostock to discrimination in schools. We will discuss a Second Circuit granting immunity to a social media platform when they were sued by a church that promoted LGBT conversion content. Finally, we have a Sixth Circuit case involving a professor who is seeking the constitutional right to misgender his students. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. How you doing, Eric? Art, I can't tell you how excited I am to be able to do these again in person sometime soon. I know you've received both shots uh, and are fully vaccinated, and I've had my first one, and I'm ready for my second one next week. Uh, It's going to be great to be in the same room again with you after a year hiatus and all this Zooming. But they're not letting people into the building here who are not members of the New York Law School community. So, Are you inviting me over to your house, Art? What are you making for dinner? We might we might do it that way, yeah. Because when they, they say groups of small, small groups of people who are vaccinated are okay. All right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's kick things off. Pam Carlin is the new head of the DOJ's Civil Rights Division. Our listeners may already know Pam as Professor Carlin from her tenure as co-director of Stanford's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Pam has been fighting for LGBTQ rights, including her work with Robbie Kaplan on Edie Windsor's case, and she's also been fighting for democracy issues like voting rights and fair maps. Last month, the Civil Rights Division issued an updated memo stating that the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, which banned LGBT discrimination in employment, applies to other federal civil rights statutes, including Title IX, which applies to the education context. This is a big development for transgender students who have faced discrimination from schools in areas from bathroom access to sports. Art, tell us about what it means to have Pam Carlin at the helm and explain the significance of this memo. Well, it's it's important having Pam Carlin there because she's an out lesbian also. I mean, this is really great. Uh, at the Biden administration, we have out people in, in important positions, uh, even in a short time. I mean, we're still within the first hundred days, and uh, so many of these people are already uh, exerting their influence. Uh and Pam Carlin argued the Basta case in the Supreme Court. So she's getting to interpret her own case, here, <laughs> uh, which is nice. But uh, the point is this this comes right back to the point I've been making and talking about Basta over the past year. The textualist approach used by Justice Gorsuch in writing the opinion for the court is transferable so easily to other federal statutes. Now, on January 20th, the first day of the Biden administration, President Biden signed Executive Order 13988, uh, in which he said, among other things, laws that prohibit sex discrimination, including Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, along with their implementing regulations, 
prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, so long as the laws do not contain sufficient indications to the contrary. So the idea is if a law prohibits discrimination or regulation prohibits discrimination because of sex, or as uh, this guidance memo from Pam Carlin says, on account of sex, which is the language used in Title IX, she says those are, are interchangeable terms. They mean the same thing. Uh, what we have to do then is look at the statute that we're dealing with other than Title VII, as to which the Supreme Court has told us already, Title IX in this case, and ask ourselves, is there anything about Title IX, about the Education Amendments of 1972 in which Title IX is embedded, uh, that would indicate to the contrary that the ban on sex discrimination in Title IX doesn't include gender identity or sexual orientation? And she says, no. Uh, there's nothing about the legislative history, there's nothing about the policies and goals behind Title IX that would justify uh, interpreting the ban on sex discrimination any differently from Title VII. Uh, now, here's where we're going to be running into, uh, into issues in, in other cases. Uh, I mean, she's just giving guidance at this point. She's sending a memo, it's directed to all the civil rights divisions, because every federal department has a civil rights division to deal with anti-discrimination policy within that department and in statutes that department enforces. Uh, she sent it to all the general counsels. It's basically an advisory from the Justice Department Civil Rights Division that they are gonna treat the ban on sex discrimination in Title VII as sort of the template or the model for interpreting the other statutes that uh, apply to sex discrimination, just as Justice Alito warned in his dissent, where he published a list of 100 provisions of federal law that he said were going to be affected or could be affected. Uh, so uh, this is a very important uh, signal because this tells the agencies, here's a way to analyze the situation to decide whether the sex discrimination laws that you enforce in your agency will automatically apply to sexual orientation and gender identity cases. And it's virtually automatic, virtually automatic. Uh, she says that the terminology they use is interchangeable. Some of them say on the basis of sex, some of them say because of sex, some of them say on account of sex, they all mean the same thing, that sex is a motivating factor. And the Supreme Court has said that it's impossible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity without discriminating on the basis of sex, because you're taking sex into account in the definition of sexual orientation and the definition of gender identity in how you classify people according to their sexual orientation and gender identity. But now we're gonna run into the fact, and it's already evident in one of the cases we're gonna be talking about, and it's also evident in the cases uh, other cases we're reporting in this issue of law notes, that President Trump appointed a lot of judges and they're not necessarily on board with this. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, it, it at least tells us the likelihood that if the Justice Department gets involved in these cases on an amicus basis, uh, we know what they'll be arguing. Uh, so it, it is important to have this uh, on the record. Uh, it's available on the Justice Department website and of course, President Biden's executive order is available on the Federal Register website and on the White House website. 
Well, that's great. And I know that our listeners are also aware that there may be another complicating factor, which is that Fulton v. Philly is very likely to come out soon. Uh, and I'm looking for an update from you on that. These non-discrimination protections are certainly very important, but we're also wondering how it's going to interact with people asserting free exercise claims. Um, do you have a sense, I know you're watching eagerly, of when we may get a decision in that case? Uh, well, they haven't posted any more decision days yet, but the practice they've been doing this year is just a few days in advance. So, you know, you check the Supreme Court's website every morning and they have this little calendar, color-coded calendar. And if if a box for a particular date is yellow, that means they're issuing decisions. Uh, when I last checked this morning, there were no yellow boxes, which means they don't have any other opinions ready to release. What they do is when an opinion is ready to release, they release it, they don't sit on it. Uh, so that means they're still working on it. Uh, and uh, they have argument days this week and next week but uh, no opinion days designated yet. But an opinion day could pop up at any time. We could be caught by surprise. So uh, if, if you're really interested in keeping track of this, just uh, pop on to supremecourt.gov every morning and see if they've put up a yellow box on the calendar. <laughs> yes, you can do that, or you can trust that Art is going to keep you up to speed. We are certainly going to do a breaking news podcast as soon as that comes out, because it's going to be enormously consequential. Well, there, there was an article in, in the New York Times this week, an analytical piece about how the Supreme Court has just been ruling incredibly consistently in, in favor of free exercise claims. Uh, in many cases that they wouldn't have previously. And the addition of Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, seems to signal that the, the, their most recent thing, striking down uh, some restrictions on church services in California, uh, it was a five to four. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberals, although he didn't sign their dissent, uh, but he did not vote uh, with, the, with the per curiam majority, which consisted of the other five Republican conservative appointees. Uh, so uh, I am not sanguine about the outcome of that case, uh, Fulton, but we'll see. We'll see. It could be a surprise. Mm, I'm not holding my breath on that front. All right. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Second Circuit case that I mentioned at the top. In March, we had an important ruling from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York involving an anti-LGBT church group and Vimeo, a video hosting platform that the kids are using these days. The case alleged that Vimeo discriminated against the church when the company banned the church from sharing LGBT conversion content. It's good to see some social media and tech companies cracking down on extremists from Trump to anti-LGBT churches. It is even nicer to see them winning in court when they come under attack. Art, tell us about this case. Okay, so the deal is that Vimeo, which hosts videos by people, uh, you, you open an account with Vimeo and then you can post your videos on their platform. Uh, which is widely available. Uh, and this guy, James Doman, who describes himself as a former homosexual, uh, he says he was a homosexual for three years, but because of his desire to pursue his faith in Christianity, he began to identify as a former homosexual. 
so he started this organization, which he called Church United in 1994. And he says the intent was to, quote, equip pastors to positively impact the political and moral culture in their communities. And he does this by promoting sexual orientation change efforts or so-called conversion therapy to try to convert people from being gay to being straight or from being trans to being uh, cisgender. Uh, he claims to have 750 affiliated pastors and he has made various videos uh, promoting uh, social sexual orientation change efforts and he posted them on Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo monitors what's being posted. Uh, they have so many things that are being posted that it takes some time for them to uh, come around to doing something. Uh, it seems that uh, Doman started his Vimeo account in 2016. He started posting these things. In November 2018, he received an email from Vimeo that one of their moderators had flagged the Church United account for review because, quote, Vimeo does not allow videos that promote SOCH, S-O-C-E, sexual orientation change efforts, it's referred to as SOCH said, we do not allow videos that promote SOCH and we have flagged five of your videos that promote SOCH and uh, we are giving you a warning. If you don't take them down, we're gonna cancel your account. And two weeks later, when Doman had not taken them down or had not responded to the email, they canceled his account and all of his stuff disappeared from Vimeo. Everything, not just the five videos, they closed his account. Uh, so, so he sued them. Uh, right. And uh, Vimeo is headquartered in New York uh, Doman is in California, uh, but he, he claimed that uh, they were violating uh, California's anti-discrimination law, public accommodations anti-discrimination law, and they were violating the New York human rights law. They said, they're discriminating against me because I'm heterosexual. He says it's sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, and uh, he also said, uh, because of my religion, uh, and religious discrimination is illegal under those laws uh, for, by places of public accommodation. He also put in a uh, California state constitutional First Amendment type claim, which dropped out of the case before it got up to the uh, Second Circuit. Uh, so, you know, he's saying that uh, Vimeo is a public accommodation and that they have to comply with these laws. But remember the provision that everyone likes to hate, but not everyone likes to hate, it depends uh, on the case, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, passed in the 1990s by Congress. And the idea behind the Communications Decency Act is at that time, in order to grow the internet, we have to provide internet service providers with immunity from being sued for what is put on their platforms. Uh, um, we're talking about interactive, we're talking about situations where users are posting stuff and Congress decided it would really stifle the growth of the internet if the people who are running these platforms uh, could be held liable for anything anyone says on them. Uh, so they gave very broad immunity. And in fact, what the Second Circuit says in this case, uh, opinion by Judge Rosemary Pooler, she said uh, that the immunity is so broad that you can't sue under a state public accommodations law in this case. Now, this is interesting because a few years ago, I remember there was a Ninth Circuit case where uh, there was an interactive uh, 
thing on a platform on the internet uh, when you're looking for roommates, roommate.com. And uh, they had people filling out forms in which they indicated their sexual orientation and they indicated if they had preferences for roommates in terms of sexual orientation. And they were sued under a local ordinance in some community in California. And the Ninth Circuit upheld the suit uh, because they said that roommate.com was in fact channeling people into discriminating by asking them those questions. So they were implicated as an editor. Uh, if you're not editing, if you're not editing, you're immune. So the question is, what if you're booting people off your website because you don't like the content that they're putting up? Well, there is a provision, a subsection in section 230, which uh, basically says, uh, well, according to Judge Pooler, uh, section 230 was enacted to provide immunity for interactive computer services that make good faith efforts to block and screen offensive content. And the statute uh, provides immunity for any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So, you know, uh, this, this guy Dolman, he was, among other things, he was arguing, well, this is constitutionally protected speech. That's irrelevant because Vimeo is not the government. So the First Amendment doesn't apply to it. They can decide what they put up there. But are they subject to anti-discrimination laws? And Judge Pooler says, no, not when they're acting pursuant to this provision. They can decide that something is objectionable. And in fact, they even take the position that promoting SOCH is harassing gay people and trans people. So they're saying it's also harassing, which is another one of the uh, of the words in that section. But otherwise objectionable. Any anyone who is running an interactive media platform that people can post comments on, post videos or whatever, they have a right to decide what's on there, and you can't sue them for booting you off. Uh, we've seen cases like this before, but this was a question of first impression in the Second Circuit. Uh, so uh, you know, it's it can come back to bite you you know, if you're a gay website. Oh, absolutely. And I know our listeners could easily envision a scenario where a website uh, might be pulling down pro-LGBT content uh, and that was supportive and inclusive because they objected on religious grounds. People have been complaining that Facebook has, has been restricting access to, uh, to gay content on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, and you can't do anything about it because... It's up to them. The Congress decided to insulate them. Now, President Trump made this a crusade that Congress should repeal Section 230 uh, because he said he wanted to be able to, to sue websites because they were uh, biased against conservatives. Oh, well, of course, President Trump has his own but personal reasons for wanting uh, some fixes. But of course, Biden and Congressional Democrats have also noted that this is a problem and need to reform um, because of the spread of disinformation and misinformation in elections and no accountability from these huge social media platforms uh, who have total immunity. Well, there are talks going on in Congress, I think within both parties, about doing something about Section 230. Maybe not repealing it, maybe uh, cutting down on... Uh, 
on the degree of uh, autonomy that these uh, platforms have. But then you run into First Amendment issues when you're talking about cutting down on the autonomy of private companies that are engaged in an expressive activity. Because the internet is your ultimate expressive activity. It's all about communication. Uh, so we'll see. You know, it's it's the, the conservatives that uh, Trump has appointed to the lower federal courts, they're busy uh, expanding free speech rights. Uh, and we'll be talking about that in a moment. <laughs> Look at you doing my job for me and teasing up our next segment. All right. Well, as Art noted, let's take a break and we'll be talking about that in a moment. All right, we're back. This next case isn't as satisfying as the previous one from the Second Circuit. In fact, it's downright infuriating. Once again, we're dealing with an appellate court ruling. This time we're looking at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which held that an Ohio professor did in fact have the right to sue his university after he was disciplined for refusing to use the pronouns of a transgender student. This panel consisted of two anti-LGBT Trump judges who found that the professor has a First Amendment right to deliberately misgender his students. Art, I'm wondering what your thoughts are here, particularly as a professor yourself. Okay, well, this is this involves Nicholas Merriweather, a philosophy professor at Shawnee State University in Portsmouth, Ohio. And in 2016, as people may recall, that was when the Gavin Grimm case was very much in the headlines because the Supreme Court had granted cert uh, to the, from the Third Circuit. There was an oral argument scheduled in March. Gavin Grimm was a transgender boy who was excluded from using the boys' facilities at the, at the high school he was in. Uh, Supreme Court was all teed up to argue it. And then, of course, there was a change in administration. And the Trump administration came in and advised the court that they did not agree with the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX, and they were withdrawing the guidance. And that guidance was relied upon by the Third Circuit in the case. They said that, that uh, the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX was entitled to deference under established principles of administrative law in interpreting the Title IX regulations. Uh, so uh, the oral argument was canceled. The Trump administration withdrew the guidance. And subsequently, in fact, uh, they, uh, they issued their own guidance on Title IX, which said it doesn't cover gender identity claims. <laughs> uh, and this they did, you know, they, they uh, announced it and then the Bostock decision came in and then they published it in the Federal Register anyway without responding to Bostock. Uh, how that might affect it, even though they indicated in the introductory language of that uh, regulation that they were issuing, that how the court decided Bostock might affect this. It's it's really strange. I mean, the Trump administration was a trip and a half. Oh my God, a trip straight, straight to hell. <laughs> professor Merriweather receives this communication. It was sent to all the professors by their union that they had been uh, informed by the university that they were uh, following the guidelines put out by the education department under Title IX, and among other things, I mean, a long list of things, uh, but one thing was you must address students consistent with their gender identity. You must respect their gender identity. Well, Meriwether was concerned about this because he identifies himself as a devout Christian. He rejects the idea that people can have a different gender identity than their genetic sex as identified at birth. Uh, he protested to his department chair about this, who ridiculed his religious beliefs, he claims. I mean, in his complaint, 
And the quotes he attributes to his department chair are really sort of offensive. I mean, the department chair said, uh, adherents to the Christian religion are primarily motivated out of fear. This is his recollection of the quotes, what was said to him. The Christian doctrines regarding hell are harmful and should not be taught. Uh, anyone who believes hell exists should not be allowed to teach these doctrines. Quote, faculty members who adhere to a certain religion should be banned from teaching courses regarding that religion. And that's, that hit home because he's a devout Christian and he teaches philosophy courses that touch on religious issues. And finally, the presence of religion in higher education is counterproductive because the purpose of higher education is to liberate students and religion oppresses students. These are all statements he attributes to his department chair in the philosophy department at Shawnee State University. Now, little bells should be going off in people's heads. Masterpiece cake shop, masterpiece cake shop. Someone right. is hostile to religion. Someone is hostile to religion. Ooh, yeah. I mean, those facts were not nearly as, I mean, woo, that was, even I was offended by that. So at the time, Merriweather didn't have any, or didn't know of any transgender students in his classes. So he goes off on a sabbatical leave. Uh, and he comes back to teach in uh, the spring semester 2018. First day in his class, a student makes a very good comment and he says, yes, sir. The student comes up to him after class and says, uh, sir, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman. He's a transgender student. Uh, so please, in future, refer to me as such. Uh, so he goes back to his department chair. He goes back to, uh, to people, talks to his union rep things like that, you know, what am I going to do? He thought he had an understanding that he'd be okay if he just referred to that student by her last name and didn't use pronouns, avoided saying things like sir or ma'am or he or she or anything, you know, just, just be very careful. Uh, but he slipped up occasionally because in his mind, he's still thinking of this person as a guy who's sitting there pretending to be a girl. That's his religious belief that is not real. Uh, and so he slipped up a few times and she ended up filing some complaints and he ended up getting investigated by the human resources people. And they decided he was creating a hostile environment for the student. He says, what hostile environment? By the end of the semester, he said, she spoke in class frequently and I gave her a high grade, a high grade in the course. How can you say there's a hostile environment? She hasn't been deprived of any educational opportunities. But they, they ended up putting a disciplinary letter in his file uh, and uh, warned him that if he didn't adhere to this rule in the future, it could be more significant discipline. He could even lose his job. So he ran to federal district court and filed suit claiming a First Amendment violation of his rights of free speech and free exercise of religion. The case was referred by the district judge to a magistrate, uh, District Judge Susan Blott, D-L-O-T-T, -T, referred the case to a magistrate judge, Karen Litkovitz, who wrote a lengthy opinion, which was, which is available on Westlaw and Lexis. It, it was uh, released on September 5th, 2019. She said that the words in question being used by Professor Merriweather in the classroom were not First Amendment protected speech. Uh, they were basically government speech because he's a public college professor. And he's speaking in the course of his uh, employment. It's it's not uh, First Amendment speech. And she relied heavily on the Supreme Court's decision in Garcetti versus Sabalos, which was 
the case where the court said that when one is speaking as a government official, one speech is the government speech, not your personal speech. Uh, when a public employee is speaking as a private citizen on matters of public concern, they're protected by the First Amendment. Although there's this uh, Pickering balance that has to be done based on the old Pickering case, uh, that uh, the speech that disrupts the workplace or interferes with the mission of the public agency might be the basis of discipline, even though it's on matters of public concern. And even though the employee was speaking as a citizen. So there's a balancing test uh, as to uh, how much protection will be given. Uh, and there was a question raised, uh, I think it was Justice Souter who was dissenting, uh, raised a question in that case. Uh, he said, what about public college and university academics? What about academic freedom? What about freedom of speech when you're doing scholarship or when you're doing teaching? And Justice Kennedy for the court said, well, we're dealing with the case before us and we acknowledge that there might be different concerns in an academic setting, but we're not deciding that in this case. So that left it for the lower courts to try to figure it out. And the lower courts uh, are not united on this. Uh, district courts, courts of appeals on the degree of First Amendment protection for uh, public uh, university uh, professors when they, uh, when they publish articles, journal articles, when they give public speeches and forums, panels, when they're teaching in the classroom. Some courts say it's government speech, it's not protected. Some courts, many courts say it's uh, under principles of academic freedom that are widely recognized. We shouldn't be censoring our academics when they're speaking about their research or when they're teaching their subject matter. All right. Uh, well, Judge Litkovitz said this, this, this use of language doesn't strike me as coming within any kind of academic freedom thing. And Judge Lott sort of rubber stamped the magistrate's recommendation to dismiss the case and it gets appealed to the Sixth Circuit. And as we mentioned, it runs into a panel consisting of three Republican appointed judges, two by Trump, one by George W. Bush. And uh, Judge Emil Roger Thapar uh, wrote the opinion for the court. Uh, I mean, you look up these judges on Wikipedia to look at their backgrounds. They tend to be younger than the judges that were being appointed by Obama and, and Clinton and even Bush. Uh, they, they tend to go to very young people and they almost always, almost without exception, it says at the end of the Wikipedia entry, has been a member of the Federalist Society since whatever year. Uh, so Mr. Thapar is a member of the Federalist Society, no surprise. Uh, he says, no, this is First Amendment speech. He says, the issue of uh, transgender, of gender identity, of how you speak about transgender people is a matter of public concern. It's an issue that's highly debated, it's controversial. And uh, we think under academic freedom, he has a right to communicate in the classroom his disbelief that someone is transgender or his disbelief that someone is a woman who he believes is a man, that this is within his first amendment rights. And uh, the, the court even briefly mentioned the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in referring not only to what the department chair said, but it seems that when he appealed this discipline within the university and ended up before the president of the university is the final appeal, uh, he wasn't there, but his attorney was there and says that they just blew him off on their religious freedom arguments. They didn't take, they, he said the university president chuckled, ha ha ha. You know, so hostility to religion? Well, looks like it. Uh, but in the end, the court based this entirely on freedom of speech. 
and not on free exercise of religion. He said, because we are deciding that his case should not have been dismissed and should be remanded to the district court to be tried as a First Amendment freedom of speech case, we don't have to rule on free exercise and free exercise is more of a problem because of Employment Division versus Smith, which says you are not exempted from complying with neutral laws, neutral state rules of general application just because of your religious beliefs. That is obviously up for possible reconsideration in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. So we'll see what happens with that. But in the meanwhile, this case goes back to the district court. And I've already seen at least one newspaper article uh, about the case uh, in Ohio in uh, the Columbus Dispatch uh, saying, professor has a right to, to call transgender students whatever he wants, you know, that, that sort of thing. That isn't the ultimate ruling in the case because it's this was just reversing a motion to dismiss. Now it goes back to the district court and they have to decide whether there was a, uh, a good enough reason. They have to do the balance, the pickering balance, I guess, and, and try to figure out whether this, uh, this speech uh, uh, is potentially disruptive enough. Right? Because we do have Title IX in there and we have, uh, we have Secretary Carlin's guidance to which the federal courts should be giving deference yeah. We also, as you said, have Trump judges, the Parr and uh, Amy Larson, I think, is the other one here. And I, can you see them coming down any other way once the balancing is done? I mean, well, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has never had to deal directly with the academic freedom argument with respect to uh, classroom speech and uh, academic publications by uh, faculty at public universities. So this case might end up being the vehicle to get that question to the Supreme Court uh, to see the degree to which academic freedom protects people. Uh, I mean, there is, there is some discussion of, of Title IX here because the university, of course, raises Title IX as the basis of it promulgating this rule. Right. Uh, and uh, Judge Thapar rejected the argument that circuit precedent because remember the Sixth Circuit decided the Harris Funeral Homes case in favor of Amy Stevens, the transgender employee who was discharged. She said, Harris doesn't resolve this case. There a panel of our court held that an employer violates Title VII when it takes an adverse employment action based on an employee's transgender status. The panel did not hold and indeed consistent with the First Amendment could not have held that the government always has a compelling interest in regulating employee speech on matters of public concern. It would allow universities to discipline professors, students, and staff anytime their speech might cause offense. That is not the law. Purportedly neutral non-discrimination policies cannot be used to transform institutions of higher education into, quote, enclaves of totalitarianism. Oh, oh my God. Well, <clears throat> surprise from a Trump judge, uh, they're extreme. Um, that's really something. I mean, at a, as I said at the outset, this is... Um, one of those cases that it's not going away, but it's the facts are deeply disturbing and the implications are troubling as well. And it's difficult. This is a difficult one for me as a professor, even though I'm at a private law school, not a public law school, to think that uh, there's no protection for the free speech rights of academics when they publish and when they speak in the classroom and when they speak on matters of public concern. Uh, because they, they're on the government payroll, we're going to treat that as government speech. Are they speaking for the government? 
See, I don't think that a professor is speaking for the government when the professor publishes a journal article or something like that. They're speaking for themselves. Uh, so someone's got to sort this out, uh, and, and we need a binding national precedent on it. But how it goes and whether what you call someone, whether you call someone sir or ma'am or he or she, whether that should be considered political speech or First Amendment protected speech is another question entirely. Uh, because I think under Title IX, the school does have a strong interest in protecting uh, transgender students from being misgendered. And what is missing from this opinion, uh, just before we finish up on it, is any discussion of misgendering as a phenomenon and its impact on a transgender student. Yes, of course. Thank you for bringing up that aspect as well, Art. Um, all right, so that concludes that segment. I know you have an of note segment for us because you gave us a little bit of a preview there. You said uh, that we were going to be talking about Trump judges, uh, and I think you mentioned the Eighth Circuit, and we haven't been to the Eighth Circuit yet. So uh, is your of note in the Eighth Circuit? I'm I always have an of note. Uh, this is a case involving an Eighth Circuit panel. Uh, dealing with another one of these disputes about a public university's refusal to allow a Christian student group to be a registered student organization because of their discriminatory policies. And uh, this was the University of Iowa. And they were sued by business leaders in Christ, a Christian student group at, the, at their business school. Uh, they were denied uh, the status because uh, there was a gay member of the group that wanted to be considered to be an officer. And they said, well, you can't be an officer of this group if you're gay. Or they didn't say if you're gay. They said, if you do not renounce engaging in homosexual sex, because that's inconsistent with our religious beliefs. And uh, so they were kicked off. They had been a registered student organization. Their registration was canceled. And they sued, claiming uh, a right under... Uh, the uh, the First Amendment, uh, and the court ruled in their favor. Uh, federal District Court uh, ruled in their favor, but granted qualified immunity to the university officials from any personal liability in connection with their decision to cancel the registered students' uh, organization status. Uh, and uh, business leaders in Christ appealed that decision on qualified immunity to the Eighth Circuit. Uh, and the standard for qualified immunity is, uh, even though it's found that you violated the constitutional rights of someone, if you're a public official, you can't be held personally liable unless it was clearly established that what you were doing violated their constitutional rights. And here, a, uh, a panel of the Eighth Circuit holds that it is clearly established. It is clearly established that it's a violation of the First Amendment rights of a student group like uh, business leaders in Christ uh, to not let them uh, to not let them uh, set their criteria to include uh, consistent behavior with their religious faith. And uh, the reason they said it was clearly uh, established is that what we're talking about is uh, unbiased enforcement of a general non-discrimination policy. See, the issue is, is the non-discrimination policy of the university uh, a neutral law of general application, or 
is it not neutral because they make exceptions for various other groups, but not for this religious group. And it turns out that there are registered student organizations uh, that you have to be a Chinese student to be a member of the Chinese Students and Scholars Association. Uh, that you have to be, uh, there's an organization called House of Lord, which is quote, a space for black queer individuals and or the support thereof, which the university has uh, treated as a registered student organization. They said they came up with six examples of organizations that have been allowed to limit access to leadership or membership based on race, creed, color, religion, sex, and other characteristics that the human rights policy purports to protect. And so the court says, how can they deny registered student status to business leaders in Christ because of their exclusionary policy when they're not doing it to the Chinese Students and Scholars Association? And they talked about organizations that are limited by sex. And there are even there is even a liberal religious organization where you have to sign on that you uh, believe that people have a right to be gay. <laughs> so, and they're a registered student organization. So, you know, the, the problem here was inconsistency. They said, therefore, the policy is not a uh, neutral law of general application because there are all these exceptions to it. And, and therefore, uh, the university officials had to know, clearly established, that they were violating constitutional rights. Therefore, they do not have qualified immunity. I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, it is kind of interesting. It's very interesting. And you always have something great for us, Art. And I can't wait to come back and chat with you either next month for another episode of Legal's LGBT Law Notes podcast or for a breaking Fulton v. Philly uh, decision. Either way, I can't wait for us to chat and we'll be back soon. And thank you so much for listening. This and other episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes and on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us five stars, leave a comment. It's how other people learn about us. We'll be back soon.